Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you, Joel. A natural Greek speaker or reader, evidently. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everyone. £275,000. Wow! That is amazing. Thank you so much for uh, all that that represents. As I said last week, we understand that's not just people who've dug around in their pockets or raided their piggy banks. That is genuine, heartfelt love for God and commitment to our mission, and we are hugely grateful. Thank you so very, very much. One of the great things about doing church in central London is when you turn up for church on a Sunday, you never know what's going to happen. In the middle of August, I turned up, many of us turned up to come to church here at the Mermaid, and we found that there were camera crews everywhere, security in the foyer, not our security, security in the foyer, and Tom Cruise on the roof. True story. Mission Impossible 6 was getting filmed on top of the Mermaid, and uh, there's a picture here of Tom in action. He literally, this is on top of the Mermaid, and This doesn't end well. (laughs) He actually uh, injures his knee, uh, you know, doesn't land properly, injures his knee, had to come off the roof. They've not done any filming of Mission Impossible 6 since. It's a lesson, ladies and gentlemen. Tom Cruise should have been in church that morning. (laughs) So there we go. um, And anyway, uh, first one was pretty good. They've just gone downhill since then, so... um, The first one was actually filmed in 1993. Uh, Believe it or not, and this will come as a great shock to some of you, there was a time when email did not exist in the world. I know, I know. And uh, one of the great things, uh, if you were there at the time, about Mission Impossible 1 was it had email in it. You know, with a really crackly dial-up connection and broadband wasn't even a word in those days. And uh, so it was all very exciting. There was one phrase that sticks out still in my mind from that film, and it's been repeated uh, in every film since. And it's this phrase, uh, your mission, if you choose to accept it. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, sort of trying to move away the cheese and, you know, everything else, just what an exciting concept that actually is, your mission. Something for you to do. Something that is going to require your focus, your attention, your energy. Something which is hard to pull off. You may not manage it, but it's yours. Or in Christian terms, I should say, it is ours. Because one of the wonderful things, one of the wonderful gifts that following Jesus provides us with, one of many, many, and we'll talk about some of the others, in due course, but one of them is a sense of mission or purpose. And it's something that we have not just as individuals. In fact, the Bible talks much more about it as a family thing than as a personal thing. But as a family, we have a sense of mission. The subject of our talk today is the Holy Spirit and mission. And I want to spend the first half looking at our mission. What is it that we're meant to do together? And the second half, looking at how the Holy Spirit really helps us to do that. 
To get at the sense of mission, probably the best way of doing it is by recounting to you an event or uh, a story that uh, um, from earlier this year. Philip and I were given tickets uh, back in January to go to the stage show of Les Mis. Hands up if you've seen Les Mis, either film or stage show. So at least half, if not more of us here, have seen the longest-running musical ever, ever in human history. Uh, a, a wonderful, a wonderful uh, both film and play. And frankly, when we went, I had forgotten just what a wonderful story it is. And Victor Hugo, the author, weaves through it all sorts of elements of the Christian story. And I remember at the end of the stage show, uh, we're there one Saturday night in January, and there are 2,000 people on their feet going mad. They're waving, they're singing, they're rocking to and fro. Many of them, I suspect, not in that theater for the first time to hear that. And it was so, people were so full of hope and so moved and so inspired. And I'm standing there thinking, what is it that's going on here? Why is it? It's the music's nice, the acting and the singing's good, but it's more than that. What is it that's going on? And I reflected on the story, and the last scene, the finale, is really two scenes woven together. The first of the hero, Jean Valjean. And he is pretty like you and I, I guess. He's done things in his life that he's not proud of. He doesn't know how life is going to end, despite some other remarkable uh, acts of generosity and of bravery. And as the duet of this part of the scene goes on, it becomes clear his sins are forgiven. Everything that's been wrong in his life will become right, and he's going to a place where chains will no longer hold him. And there's a wonderful sense, and I re-watched, I actually watched the, uh, this bit of the film in preparation for this, and I just started bawling. I'm crying, I'm thinking, David, you can't do that when you preach. So fortunately, I've not shown the film, so I'm okay. But it was just very moving, this man who had hopes and fears, as of course we all carry, and if you've ever uh, had the experience of saying goodbye to somebody as they are passing away, they always want to say to you, they always want to put anything right that's outstanding. It's part of what we do, part of what we need. So the first part of it is him walking towards death, and you have this huge sense of relief. And it's a huge sense of relief for him, but you think it could be okay for me too. And then you start to hear the chorus coming initially off stage or behind, uh, behind a curtain. And they're singing the song they sang earlier as they were fighting for justice on the barricades, but the, or the same tune, but now the words have changed. They were previously words of resistance, but now they're words of hope. Hope that the poor will gain their just reward. Hope for peace and justice, that spears will be beaten into plowshares, using biblical language, hoping for a better tomorrow. And as you're just sort of recovering from this sense of relief, my life will be okay when it finishes, you have this incredible sense of hope that not only is my life going to be okay on death, but there is a better tomorrow in the here and now as well. Now, what Victor Hugo has done is he has taken the Christian message 
And he's telling people through the uh, skillful retelling of a story what is like, what is, what will happen in the end, but he misses out how it will happen. He does the what, but not if you like the who or the how. And everyone is just getting carried away. Oh, this is wonderful. My life will be okay and the world will be okay. But he doesn't say in that play, that book, he doesn't say it's all because of Jesus. Now, if you read the Gospels, that, of course, is what you find. You don't just learn what Jesus taught through what he said, but actually what he did. It's true of anyone. Watch what they do, and you'll find out what's most important in their life. Jesus has a leper come to him. Now, if you are a leper in first century Israel, you've got a lot going against you. There is no chance of community. You're literally meant to call out if people come towards you. Ring a bell. Unclean, unclean. In other words, do not come near me. Anyone who has been in solitary confinement or just felt lonely on a Saturday afternoon knows what that feels like to be lacking community. It goes deeper than that. You cannot touch a leper and now my suspicion, now all of us will have had the gift of touch, will have touched somebody in today or in recent days. A leper never gets to experience human touch. He cannot either get close to God, he can't get close to people, but he can't get close to God. He's unclean. He cannot go into the temple. His body is literally disintegrating in front of him. He's watching his digits fall off. So a leper is symbolic of all, so many of the problems that you and I carry as individuals. Social challenges, spiritual challenge, relationship with God, physical challenge. So Jesus comes to him and the leper says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Read for clean. You can change every facet of my life. And it says Jesus, indignant, or in some translations and probably better, Jesus, filled with compassion. Amazing, isn't he? Generous, compassionate, authoritative, filled with compassion. He reaches out his hand and he says, be clean. And the, the man's body is transformed in a moment. His social relationships, his spiritual relationship and his physical health. You say, well, hang on, which of, which of those is most important? Is that the spiritual, the social or the physical? Jesus doesn't seem to differentiate. He just says in his words, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is when God is ruling and getting his will done. And when God comes, against, comes up against sickness, his will is that it's removed. When God comes across social isolation, he puts a community of people around it. When God finds those of us who have not access to him, he makes a way. The kingdom is here. But it's not just individually. Later, Jesus is on a boat. There's a storm. Many of us are familiar with the story. Even professional boatmen, fishermen are frightened. And Jesus, we're told, stands up in the boat and he speaks to the storm as if it's got a personality. And he literally says, the literal Greek is, be muzzled. And the storm stops immediately. And it shows us that one day when the kingdom comes in its fullness, that even the natural world will behave itself. Now, that's very good news if you live in the Caribbean or the southern states of America after the hurricanes of 
recent months, or if you live in Bangladesh and India and you've lost family and friends because of the flooding. It's very good news personally, but it's very good news for society as a whole. The kingdom is here. And that was Jesus' mission. Mark sums everything up. He's like, if you read Mark's gospel out loud in the Greek, Joel would be able to do that. Most of us would probably be challenged. But you literally sound out of breath. Mark's constantly in a hurry. And it says in verse 14 of Mark chapter 1, Jesus comes into Galilee and it sums up his message. The kingdom is here. Turn your life round and follow me. So that was Jesus' mission, but how about our mission? Well, our mission is to pray for the kingdom, enact the kingdom, declare the kingdom, and one other thing we'll come to. Let's just do those three very briefly. Pray for the kingdom. You remember the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. If you don't know what to pray, if you've made some time to pray, you get into your room, you shut the door, and then your mind goes totally blank, and you think, I can't think of anything to pray for. That also is a universal experience. Then just pray for the kingdom to come. Pray for God's will to be done in your family, with your friends, and with your workplace. It'll keep you going for a good amount of time. Pray your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're to pray. But also when Jesus gathered 12 or 72 and he sent them out, he said, here's your message. The kingdom is here. So pray it, declare it, and do it. Oh, pray for the sick. Feed the hungry. Care for those who are uh, outcasts. Introduce people to the life-changing love of Jesus Christ. So pray it, declare it, enact it. One other thing. Build a community that expresses it by the way that people live. That's what Jesus did. He took people who were political opponents, zealots who were against the Roman resistance, and collaborators of the Roman resistance, and he built them into the same community. He took the educated, and he took those who had not the most basic of probably reading and arithmetic or whatever, and he put them together. He took wealthy people who came to him, and the common working man, and he started to develop a community of them. And in that community, the kingdom was present. You could feel it or taste it. He actually said to his disciples on one point, he said, go and give away what you've received. Freely you've received, now freely give. So this is a community where you taste this new life, this new world that's coming, that was sung about on the barricades. You taste it, it affects your life. Now, some people say, and actually often in London, people say, oh, well, the community bit, that'll just need to wait. I mean, if you knew how many hours I work, then how many hours it takes me just to keep my life together, washing, cleaning, all the other things, seeing friends. I've just not got time for the community bit. I want to suggest that without the community bit, people's lives do not enjoy long-term change. I had the privilege recently of hearing David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, speak, and he was reflecting on this question of how do people change? And he said, I thought I'd go and ask an expert, he said. So I went and asked a youth worker friend of mine who's 83 years old. 83 and still a youth worker. 
He said this guy had been being a youth worker for 60 years. So, you know, this guy's got some serious track record. So David says to him, he says, uh, tell me, how do you change the life of a teenager whose life has gone astray? And the guy said, there's only one thing in my 60 years of working with young people that has actually had that effect, and he said, it is giving them a relationship. He said, it is giving them a relationship. People change in the end in community. People grow in community. David Brooks uh, also mentioned lots of research, uh, which I've not got time to do, to do now, on simply the fact that we think and we grow with other people. And so that's what Jesus did. He called us. Jesus prayed, enacted, and proclaimed the kingdom, but then he built communities. Now, that's what we're seeking to do as well. We're going to get in a minute. Some of you will be thinking, what on earth has this got to do with the passage that was read this morning? Well, it's the background. I just forgot to say that at the beginning. But it's the background. It gets there because actually Paul stands on Jesus' shoulders. Paul does what Jesus did. Paul is going around the Mediterranean, starting churches, communities, full of the presence of the kingdom. In Acts, the term is not kingdom, but it's the spirit. That's the link. In the Gospels, it talks about the age of the kingdom. In Acts, it talks about the age of the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing. So Paul creates communities full of the Spirit. He gets one going. He goes to the next city, the next city, and so on and so forth. Now, in a smaller scale sort of way, that's what we're doing here in London, is we're seeking to start communities full of the Spirit. That is what we are meant to be, where we draw others in, and where they too experience the life-changing love of Jesus. Uh, as Liam mentioned earlier, Joe is preaching down in Sutton today. So this is the third Christchurch London service of the day. 10 o'clock in the south, which was great this morning, and more people in the room than I've seen since it started. It was super encouraging. 10.30 down in Sutton. Now, some of you may remember that I, because I've told this story before, I went down to Sutton in December, and we have 20 adults in Sutton who, who've been coming to the, the Mermaid on a Sunday. And they were like, it's really hard. It's a long way. We don't know whether we should do it. So I said, don't. I mean, you don't have to. I mean, no one can make you come to church. It's probably not a great thing to come to church moaning as you do so. Just saying. So they, I said, look, why don't you go to one of the other churches in Sutton? There's some great churches there. They said, we don't want to. We want to start a Christchurch London service. So he said, okay, let's try it out and see. Let's see if the Lord is in it. 20 adults now, let's pray that by the end of 2017, we have 40 adults. And if we do, then we'll take that as a sign that the Lord is in this. They said, great. Let's go. And they've had an amazing year. Well, Andy T reports, he was down there two weeks ago. They're meeting every other week at the moment. Andy reports that there were in the room last time 43 adults, seven regulars missing, and in total with all the children, 74 people in that service. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Thank you, Jesus. So it looks, ladies and gentlemen, like we're going to start another service because we think it seems that the Lord is in that. And what's sweet and wonderful 
is that the great majority of those who've started coming would never come here. I mean, they don't know what they're missing, clearly, but they would never come here. So we're able to do that there, and in due course, we trust we'll do that in many other places as well. So that is our mission. What's our mission? Start communities full of God's kingdom or full of God's presence, declaring how that affects every part of an individual's life and can affect every part of the broader world as well. Now, what has this got to do with the Holy Spirit? Let me just make, in, in the time that we have, three comments about the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. The first is this, that the Holy Spirit is essential to mission. It's not just useful. If you are a skier, you would not think of going to the top of the black run and leaving your skis behind. You wouldn't be able to get down. In just the same way, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus doesn't expect you to go on mission without the Holy Spirit. In fact, he, lit, he said to his disciples, don't do it. He said, stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, you might have thought that being with Jesus for three years was enough. Or that being someone who'd seen the resurrected Jesus would be enough. Well, they had had those experiences. It clearly was deemed not to be. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, if you forget everything else I say this morning, which some of you might just, if you forget everything else, I want you to remember this one thing. Do not go on mission without the Holy Spirit. Get more of the Holy Spirit. It makes all the difference. When you haven't got much of the Holy Spirit, it's very hard to do mission. When you've got a lot of the Holy Spirit, it's hard not to do mission. It just happens. Dwight Moody tells the story of his experience of the Holy Spirit. He was known. He was a minister in Chicago, one of the youngest ministers in Chicago, and he was known for being full of energy and lacking spirituality. It's not a great combination in a church leader. Full of energy, compensating, therefore, for his lack of spirituality. However, his saving grace was two old ladies who would pray for him regularly. And he tells the story, uh, and he says their names were Auntie Cook and Mrs. Snow. Auntie Cook and Mrs. Snow, he would stand at the door, say goodbye to everyone as they left, and they would always shake him by the hand, look him in the eye and say, we're praying for you. Which I suspect as a young minister is a rather disconcerting thing to be told. And he said to them one time, he said, why don't you pray for all the people who would love to come to the church rather than praying for me? They said, no, 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 dear. They said, we're praying for you for more of the Holy Spirit. And actually later, he actually prayed with them. And they noted how intensely he expressed his desire for more of God. He tells the story that it's later actually on his way to do a preaching trip in England that he is walking down Wall Street in New York. And, the Holy, and he suddenly starts to have this experience of the love of God. It is so overwhelming that he rushes to a friend's house and pleads for the use of a room to himself. And for the next few hours, it's just him and the Holy Spirit in that room somewhere off Wall Street, and his life is entirely changed. Here's what he says. He says, I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I didn't present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. 
I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. Now, can I ask you a question this morning? Have you had that sort of experience? Have you had that sort of experience of the Holy Spirit? New Testament makes it clear. There's uh, three steps, if you like, by way of pre preparation. And the first is desire. That there is a connection between the amount we desire the Spirit and the amount of the Spirit we get. So I thought it was so striking that these old ladies said, when Dwight Moody prayed with us, he longed. See, my question is this. Is the Holy Spirit something that when you're here on a Sunday morning and someone mentions it, you think, well, I could do with a bit more of that? Or is it something that you wake on a Monday morning and entirely in your mind is, I need more of God? Something that's still there on Wednesday afternoon and Saturday lunchtime, you're still thinking, I need to. There's something not quite right. I need to get my heart right. I need to get, I want power. I want love. I want his presence. I want his closeness. You see, the depth of desire affects what we actually get. And there's been occasions where I've talked with people and they've said, will you pray with me? And I've said, no. Go away and read these scriptures and then come back. And I want you to pray for a week or I want you to pray for two weeks. Jesus stood up and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. But it does require thirst before the drink. How much do you want it? No, don't answer me now. How much do you want it deep down? I mean, does it matter? Thirst, number one. Secondly, we ask confidently knowing that he will give. We ask confidently knowing that he will give. I remember chatting with a, a young man one time about this. He said, David, I know he gives the Holy Spirit to others, but I don't know about me. I don't know if I ask whether I'll get anything. I read him, I actually I got him to turn to this verse. He read it out loud. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? And I said to him, I said, who, who does this verse say gets the Holy Spirit? He said, those that ask him. I said, does that include you? And we never prayed. But that young man started shaking in the seat next to me as he received the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he didn't pray on a hope. I might get something. He realized that those that ask receive. And thirdly, we do, we receive. I don't know who, how many of you were here when Liam talked about his summer holidays recently. How one member of the Thatcher family just jumps into the pool and the other lets themselves in much more gradually. And his point was it doesn't matter which way you get the refreshment or get wet. But it's, it doesn't matter that you, how you do it, but it matters that you do it. Now, for some of us, we just, it just works. We open our hearts just a little more and a little more and a little more. And we just let ourselves in gently. Others of us are just like, let me at it. Doesn't matter. You just receive. You receive the Holy Spirit. There'll be an opportunity at the end. The Holy Spirit is the basis of 
is the basis of mission, but secondly, he directs us on mission. And this passage is all about the fact Paul tries to go one way into Asia and we're told the Holy Spirit won't let him. And then we're told he tries to go into Bithynia and the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, won't let him. And then he has a dream one night and there's a man from Macedonia in his dream saying, come over and help us. And clearly they talk afterwards and they say, Luke, who's writing, says, we concluded that God is sending us here. And so together, we're also looking for the Holy Spirit's guidance. We're looking for his guidance. When and where should we start more services? I had the privilege uh, just a couple of weeks ago now of being in a room of leaders with Brian Houston. Brian Houston is the senior pastor of the Hillsongs Church globally. And of course, many of us know Hillsongs. It's been an extraordinary phenomena over recent years. And they've started churches in Johannesburg and L.A. and New York, many places all around the world, with startling success. And one of the questions that was asked, Brian, was, how do you know where to start the next service? I thought, oh, interesting. On our much more modest scale, London, how do you know where to start the right service? He said this. He said, we asked three questions. Right place, right time, right people. He said, those are the three things. He said, when you get two of the three, it sometimes works. He said, when you get all three, he said, it works really well. The right place. Where should we go next? And I said to the guys in the South Service, where is it? Is it Camberwell? Peckham? Brixton? You tell me. So they didn't have an immediate answer, but they can think about that one. The right time. When is the right time? To start services is not unlike giving birth. Mothers in the room will understand that there is a time where if your baby comes too early, then you've got to care for that baby very carefully. They're very vulnerable. But if the baby comes too late, then the mother and the child are in danger. There is a moment when it's just the right time. Now, we're in a period of consolidation at this point in time. We've sent services out, and now the Sutton guys have gone out. So this is a time for us to gather together again, to build community in this service, and to draw people in, and to develop leaders. So I would be surprised, you never know, but I would be surprised if we start another service from this service shortly. But in due course, I'm sure that we will, and I'm sure that we will from other services as well. And so we constantly thinking, right time, right place, right people, do we have the leaders, do we have the workers, and so on and so forth. My, quest, my request to you is that you would continue to pray with us as we look to do this across the city. And finally, the Holy Spirit directs us as individuals. Paul, once he's in Philippi, he goes to the place of prayer where he finds Lydia who believes his message. It's like he goes to the obvious place. I mean, if you're going to go if you land in Philippi, where do you go? Will you go where people are spiritually open? Do you know, I think God puts people who are spiritually open in every one of our lives. They're always there if we will look for them. I remember years ago turning to a guy, his name was Simon. We were studying. It was in the days I was studying. I turned to him and I said, Simon, I said, God, you know, this may sound crazy, but God has really changed my life. And I remember he just turned and looked at me and he said, I have always wondered about please can we talk and we talked and we I gave him books and I took him to services made a profound difference to his life 
there are people in all our lives who are open. Uh, maybe the bank will come back, please. New friendship that I'm developing is with Chuck and Taryn Freeland up in Aberdeen. They have nine services uh, across Aberdeen. They're planning to plant lots of churches all around Scotland. And uh, I said to Chuck recently, I said, how's your last year gone? He said, okay. He said, we saw 350 people come to faith. I said, what? He said, I, he said, he said there's nothing great about that. He said, lots of churches. I said, Chuck, in Scotland and in England, lots of churches do not see that. He said, tell me about it. He said, you know what? He said, what we found the most important thing is, is that the people who come to our services are part of the community, but have friends who are not part of our church. He said, the guys who play squash on a Thursday evening or five-a-side football on a Monday or whatever else, he said, that is where we've seen many people come to faith. They've developed friendships, and you don't talk about, I mean, that's the natural place to talk about faith within friendships, where you share the things that really matter to you. He said, as the friendships have developed, they've been looking for who is there in my life, my world, who's open to spiritual things. And he said, if they're not open to spiritual things, they're at least open to friendship. Lydia here too. Interestingly, she says to Paul, you and your team, come and stay at my house. And so we find too, the Holy Spirit opens doors for us in terms of mission. So the Holy Spirit and mission. Don't do mission without the Holy Spirit. Get more of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be an opportunity in a moment uh, to do just that. Uh, and the Holy Spirit creates communities as we listen to him, look for openings, looking for those that are thirsty. And open. Let's stand together, shall we? Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.